Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities, Asia Pacific. So Marty, it has finally happened. After three years, China has dropped its zero COVID policy. And we've certainly kicked off 2023 with a very rapid reopening. It has indeed, Catherine. And I checked in with the analysts this morning to get some up-to-date statistics. Traffic is up to almost 90% of 2019 levels, and hotel bookings are actually exceeding where we were in 2019. So China's reopening is good for economic growth. Markets have certainly rallied. But what does this mean for supply chains? Because short term, we've seen how a wave of COVID infections has been disrupting manufacturing as well as logistics networks. But there are also some longer term forces at play. There are, Catherine. And when it comes to supply chains and globalization, the world looks really different today than it did even just a few years ago before COVID. We've got the US-China trade war, which has prompted companies everywhere to hedge geopolitical risks by diversifying their manufacturing into other markets and shortening their supply chains. And don't forget the slow burn demographic challenge, which is pushing up manufacturing costs. So given all this, with China's rapid reopening, what does this mean for the country's growth outlook and also for its manufacturing competitiveness? In addition, will we see inflation get passed on to others like the US or Europe? And of course, whilst China's markets have been rebounding strongly on this initial reopening trade, how should investors position for the next phase? So I'd like to introduce our first guest today, Evelyn Huang, and she's a multi-asset portfolio manager at Fidelity. Evelyn, you've just relocated from Beijing to Hong Kong, and I don't know, it might feel like a different era today. What was it like living in China through zero COVID times, and how did it compare to once things started to get lifted? So it was pretty challenging uh, through the zero COVID time. And then uh, things start to notably change, uh, especially November last year. I think the time mark is November 30. Um, after that, the all the quarantine lockdown measures were lifted from the city of Beijing where I lived. Because of the wave of Omicron virus, uh, the city indeed endured. You can see the mobility in the city dropped pretty drastically. Um, and uh, on my way from my apartment to the airport in December 16, which is, by the way, the estimated peak infection time in the city, the traffic on the, on the road is very light. Um, most people are getting sick at home. It's interesting, Evelyn, because you talk about your personal experiences with both the lockdown and then the pivot we saw with the, uh, the policy change. But how does this impact, or in your view, what did it do to supply chains and what we were seeing both in terms of the period of lockdown and then again with the dropping of zero COVID? Yeah, from a supply chain perspective, I think it's, uh, the impact is less for goods and the impact is much more for services, right? You know... Uh, the transportation part of things, right? International travel is almost close to zero. But the, the goods, uh, as you can see in 2020 and 2021, uh, the exports uh, of China to the rest of the world is actually pretty nice uh, because uh, of the zero COVID policy, China was a bit more insulated from a large wave of infections. Um, so China was powerhouse of producing goods and then exporting to the rest of the world. Things start to shift a bit from last year. Uh, the exports in China start to take a hit 
because of the zero COVID policy, the reservoir was opened, right? And China still uh, have waves of harsh lockdown around different parts of the, the country. Evelyn, you know, we've seen the market bounce back quite a bit in China since the reopening. And some are even starting to say that the services companies are looking a little bit pricey. How are you thinking about the markets? You just talked about goods versus services. When you're looking at investing, is it both? Is it one over the other at this point? That's a great question. You see the market dynamics shifts, right? So previously, uh, you see those more defensive sectors uh, outperforming. And then starting from November, December last year, as those more services and consumption-related sectors start to rebound very sharply. Because market is front-loaded, usually market leads uh, economic recovery by a couple quarters, right? Uh, typically, it's like six months. So market was really looking forward for consumption-led demand recovery. Um, there's a obvious sector rotations within domestic China-Asia markets. Valuation-wise, uh, as we track the valuation of the China issuers as a whole on a monthly basis, I think the valuation, obviously, from the end of November to today has come down, uh, I mean, getting less cheap quite a bit, but still we are away from the fair value. So valuation-wise, the market could have still have some room to run, but what's more interesting is for the next couple of quarters, our expectation for the earnings recovery, right? So. Typically, PE moves first, and then you have the earnings to support the market to enter into a next leg of recovery. It's interesting also that Xi Jinping just came out and spoke about how consumption, domestic demand, growing internally is really, really key. So no big surprises here because this has been the messaging. But were you intrigued with the timing of this statement, or is, is it was it just common practice? December 15, um, the Central Economic Work Conference uh, statement is very interesting, right? In my mind, it's not a huge surprise because at the very beginning of that policy statement, it says we are facing a very challenging external environment, right? So with a challenging external environment, the outlook for net export isn't great. So the investment side with uh, all the property sectors uh, being under pressure, so the investment-led growth potentially is not a huge area to expect. So then you are left with the consumption part. And uh, I think our uh, con consumer analyst has estimated there's potential six trading of pent-up uh, savings that can transfer into pent-up demand uh, from a consumption point of view. So that's a huge area that this year can just be the major area to lead the demand recovery. Six trillion RMB. I mean, that is just a staggering amount of money. And when I think about the actual wealth of households in China, you know, if I was living in China, I'd be already thinking about what I would spend my money on. Would it be um, travel overseas? Would it be a new bag? Could it be a new car even? Marty, what about you? Well, it's interesting that you say that, Catherine, talking about new cars. And if we link that to supply chains, one of the more interesting dynamics is around electric vehicles. And one of the things we're seeing with them is they're starting to make strategic moves to diversify their own supply chains away from China by setting up shop in other markets like Southeast Asia. I had a chance to catch up with James Trefford, who's an analyst and portfolio manager at Fidelity. And he's been keeping a really close eye on this trend. We actually got to do it while we were riding around in one of BYD's cars and I'm sure our listeners will know that BYD is one of the leading vehicle manufacturers in China. Unfortunately, neither one of us had a Singapore driver's license, but we were lucky enough that our colleague Chris Wong does. So he agreed to get behind the wheel for us. 
Chris, thanks again for driving us around. How, how does it feel? You said this is your first time driving a, uh, an electric vehicle? Hi, Marty. Yes, uh, this is my first time, literally my first time behind the wheel of an electric vehicle. Yeah, and what kind of car is this? Uh, this is a BYD E6. And just fun fact, BYD actually stands for Build Your Dreams. That's something not everyone knows about. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Does it feel different than an internal combustion engine? Like, how does it feel driving? Yeah, it does. So it's uh, my first few minutes behind the wheel. Uh, what hits me the most is the quietness, how smooth it is. So that's really different and you don't really feel the car revving as much, yeah. if at all, compared to a regular car. Okay. All right. Well, look, thanks again, James. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, this is kind of fun. So, James, first of all, I'm curious, what, why are Chinese electric vehicle companies looking to diversify supply chains? Look, I think supply chain diversification is not something unique to the EV industry, and nor is it unique to Chinese corporates. A lot of the multinationals operating in China will be doing this more forcefully. You know, but broadly speaking, there's push factors and there's pull factors. Got it. And so maybe give us a little bit of detail. What are some of those mm. push and pull factors? I think the main push factor will be a, a desire to alleviate some of the concentration risks around having all of your capacity, all of your manufacturing capacity in one market, so in yeah. one location. And that realization probably began during the US-China trade war the last five years. But definitely the experience of COVID and the disruptions brought about by lockdowns and logistical bottlenecks will have emphasized it. So you're seeing a lot of manufacturing companies want to diversify uh, or localize their supply chains or move some international. And, and a lot of the multinationals are adopting a China plus one framework. I mean, another structural push factor is also cost and labor cost differentials. A couple of decades ago, China enjoyed a very significant uh, labor cost advantage. Uh, the statistic I like is just prior to China joining the, the WTO at the end of 2001, their hourly dollar manufacturing wage cost was one seventh of that of Mexico. Wow. Today, it's essentially a premium, it's 15% or so wow. higher. I mean, that's a dollar um, wage, so you know, it doesn't account for some of the productivity gains, but it, it, paints a picture, you can understand why a lot of the labor-intensive, low-end manufacturing uh, has been looking for new homes. Um, and then on the pull side, you know, there's a desire to be closer to a lot of uh, end markets. And a, a lot of countries are doing a lot in terms of reform or tax changes to, to try and entice and lure the FDI in. Yeah, I see what you mean about it. it's not just an electric vehicle dynamic, is it? Maybe let's turn to Thailand a little bit. Are there examples of Chinese companies that you can think of specifically? I mean, we might be sitting in one right now that are that are you know taking advantage of some of this. Yeah, I mean, B BYD recently made quite a high-profile um, acquisition of a land plot from WHA Industrial Estate in Rayong in the Eastern Economic Corridor. Mm. This is big. I mean, it's a hundred hectares. The overall planned investment will be five hundred million dollars, wow. and they're planning to make one hundred and fifty thousand vehicles a year starting next year. Um, Great Wall is also present in the in the country. They bought a plant from General Motors uh, a couple of years ago, but have recently announced uh, an upsizing in the in the investment to three hundred million dollars. And other Chinese players are, are certainly present there. MG, Netta, and if you speak to the Thailand industrial estate companies, they are very confident that there's a, a very solid, healthy pipeline of indicative interest from Chinese EV supply chain companies looking to relocate in.
you know, Marty, it's interesting. It's not just EV or Chinese companies that are participating in this China plus one strategy. It's becoming quite a long-term trend that we're hearing a lot about. Yeah, it is, Catherine. And, you know, you, you would have heard the conversation with James around Thailand, but it, it's not just EV, it's other industries and it's other countries too. So you're right. It, it's quite a trend we're experiencing. And with not just China being a manufacturing powerhouse, but indeed Asia and the reshuffling that we're seeing regarding all these supply chains, what do you think, Evelyn, in terms of the inflationary impact all of this does have? So uh, this definitely um, put a bit of inflation pressure into the near term because uh, you are potentially moving your manufacturing hub from uh, less labor competitive areas to, to more higher cost. Uh, not just labor, but also, uh, you know, electricity, uh, infrastructure. China being the number one manufacturing country in the world is for a certain reason, because China has been building all the infrastructures and then uh, the friendly policies toward foreign investment for such a long time, right? So uh, immediate impact on your cost is uh, something that, you know, we all expect. But if you think more long-term, especially for globally competitive companies, diversification is always a good thing because you sustain your company for a long run. This is the, looks like uh, the tension between U.S. and China isn't something that can go away pretty quickly. Um, so I think a lot of companies are positioned to diversify and then to have um, more work to, to kind of like preemptively uh, position themselves. So I just uh, had a research report saying uh, there is a survey done by U.S.-China Business Council, and uh, the number is like over 20% of U.S. companies uh, right now have footprint in China are thinking about diversifying away uh, at least a portion of their business uh, from China to some other regions. Evelyn, I want to come back to this question about the inflationary impacts of what China is doing and juxtapose it against what we're seeing in the U.S., where you know, over the last couple of months, we've seen inflationary expectations come off quite a bit. Do you think as some of this decoupling and some of this activity of outsourcing supply chains into other markets expands that it will counterbalance that inflation coming off? And how would you position for that? Well, the inflation dynamic is indeed right now pretty complicated. So uh, U.S. Uh, nearshoring and reshoring manufacturing base into their own domestic markets. At least we know the U.S. labor cost compared to China is like five to six times, right? So moving manufacturing base back from China, at least partially, into U.S., you will face this higher cost. So uh, cost pressure is there, but this is more of a strategical diversification, I guess, companies um, must have to. Thanks, Evelyn. Let's go back now to my conversation with James Trafford in the electric vehicle. And now we're going to hear more about China and how it's expanding even beyond Thailand into other markets in Southeast Asia. James, you, you manage funds in Thailand and Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Indonesia, you and I have talked about quite a bit is an amazing opportunity when we think about the decoupling environment with some of the items that you've talked about. What about Indonesia? I think the opportunity for Indonesia is actually on the battery side. Oh, and the battery is a, a critical component of the EV and a very significant proportion of the cost. 
and Indonesia is blessed with an abundance of natural resources which go into the battery, and particularly nickel, cobalt, manganese, which are used in the cathode materials for an NCM battery. I mean, just looking at nickel alone, Indonesia has the world's biggest reserves. The production is increasing every year, and actually is set to be supplying the majority, over 50%, of the world's nickel ore supply by 2024, 2025. Interesting. Well, you can see Indonesia, which is clearly a very natural resource rich country, really kind of leveraging that that position. It's in, I know you just came back from Indonesia last week. Yes, I mean, I listened to a presentation by President Jokowi, and a, a big chunk of it was on this uh, mineral downstreaming and trying to capture the higher value add parts of the value chain. They're targeting, in terms of battery capacity, they're targeting 140 gigawatt hours by 2030. And what does that mean? That's, it's big. <laughs> it's really, really big. It will require significant investment. So it, there's probably going to be multi-years investment in this industry. And it's a great opportunity for the country to add higher value-added exports. So James, a lot of what we've talked about, it sounds early stage to me, clearly growing fast, but other limitations? What, what do you think the limitations are, especially compared to China? Well, I think compared to China, look, China is not going to sacrifice truly significant share in these industries. I mean, the, the, the scale built up in China and the efficiencies already existing within China are not something that's going to be rivaled anytime soon. But I do expect these Southeast Asian nations to just to, to benefit from some outsourcing, some FDI uh, relocation here. We talk about the tailwind of the demographic advantage that, that you know countries in Southeast Asia have versus, say, the rest of the world. You've talked about that sort of GDP growth, which exceeds Europe and many other places. This really brings it to light. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. Marty, just some really interesting points that James highlighted. But, you know, I still think, and, and Evelyn alluded to this earlier, that China's position and, and its whole infrastructure that it's built over the decades, it's, it's really, it's very hard to compete with him, isn't it? It is. And yeah, Evelyn mentioned the cost advantage that China has over the U.S. And and you can see how critical that has been. And it's going to be tough to break, like you said. So Evelyn's still with us in our Hong Kong studio, but I'd also like to bring into the conversation Linda Zhou, who's one of our Shanghai-based portfolio managers. Good to see you, Linda. Hi, Catherine. Thank you. Yeah, happy to back to China podcast. So, you know, it's interesting, Linda, I think back to pre-COVID and all the years where uh, you know, I used to be with you or the other analysts going and visiting the various manufacturing plants and hubs in China. So over the years, has there been a really noticeable change in your view in terms of offshoring or reshoring? I guess a lot of things have changed in the past three years, especially, you know, um, after we experienced the COVID period. Um, the biggest challenge we have in China is, uh, as you said, sourcing from the overseas market is, is definitely the first one. And also shipping cost, uh, especially in the uh, year of 2020 and 2021, was also a very big concern. That's why it makes the Chinese companies to try a lot of effort uh, to do domestic uh, localizations. That happens most obviously in some of the key components. Um, on that side, uh, there is also quite some of the political reasons you probably can imagine. You know, there is a lot of bans for the Chinese companies to source internationally on some of the high-end components, um, you know, namely chips uh, and also some of the other products. So domestic sourcing is definitely uh, the key priority for the Chinese companies. 
Evelyn, just picking up on what Linda said, how easy is it for Chinese companies to actually deglobalize? Well, it will be company dependent, right? I think there are a lot of uh, very competitive Chinese companies uh, already have a big global footprint. To name it, like Longji um, is already the biggest manufacturing of solar panels in the world. And then obviously they are building this global capacity, not just so. Uh, manufacturing, but legal and all the other infrastructure that is needed to become a truly global company, right? So I guess uh, going forward, especially longer term, the stage and the upside is still there for globally competitive companies from China to compete in the international stage. It's interesting, Linda, you know, we spoke earlier about the emphasis the Chinese government has on consumption and domestic demand. But also for many years, we've all been talking about if China was to become the superpower, it doesn't mean that they will be the largest manufacturer of shoes or toys anymore. It will be climbing up the value chain from a manufacturing perspective. So are we actually seeing this? Yeah, indeed. Um, I think there is a natural kind of like a cycle um, topic on that side. As you said, China used to be a key kind of like manufacturing hub for the world on kind of like low-end products like shoes, you know, toys. However, the overall environment, both economic-wise and natural environment-wise, it doesn't really support that developed method anymore. Uh, for example, you know, um, the topics on the labor costs are rising as well as on the um, emission increase, that's also quite concern of the, the Chinese government. So on the labor cost rising side, uh, we're also talking about the demographic changes. That's the true reason, I think, behind a lot of uh, textile and labor-intensive industries to move outside of China, mainly to some of the ASEAN countries, which continue to have the uh, labor cost advantages. Whereas for the um, high-emission industries, uh, for example, some of the low-end manufacturings in, in plastics, on that side, it's also because of the higher standard on environmental protections. It probably doesn't really fit China to be the global hub anymore. So I think um, both from the supply side and demand side, uh, the domestic manufacturer companies do have the chance to move up the supply chain. It's interesting, Linda. Evelyn, I guess, same question back to you in a slightly different way. When you hear what Linda says about some of the details of different sectors and, and efforts to move up and down the supply chain, how does that make you think about asset allocation and maybe sector allocation? Well, after the consumption-led kind of... Uh, market recovery, we are potentially entering a second stage of earnings growth stage, right? What other companies have good potential to grow earnings this year and next will be those companies uh, who may have better lag to run in the next couple of quarters. So as we can see that after the healthy correction in the whole new energy and EV chain, I think some of the companies, uh, if you look at the, them from a PEG perspective, uh, they are now become uh, less expensive. So uh, that could be one potential area that will have uh, alpha opportunities uh, from a sectoral perspective. Then from a negative side, you probably should be cautious about uh, those exporters who have their you know, majority of their business uh, exporting to US and Europe, right? So those areas may be a little bit challenging for this year. Linda, would you agree with Evelyn in terms of her sector views and how are you positioned in your portfolio? Yeah, I quite agree with Evelyn. I think most of the trend she mentioned is just really happening in the market. 
This, besides that, I also see a quite good opportunity set in the CapEx play. So that's also corresponding to the deglobalization trend we've been seeing, such as companies like BYD, you know, they're going to build a plant in Thailand. They probably also need to um, build another plant in Europe for the domestic clients. So that will give the um, equipment player who provide those equipment to BYD a very good opportunities because it's just simply another round of CapEx expansion uh, for these OEM companies in the globe. Well, Nick, can we also talk about tech, semis in particular? And I'd like to hear your view on the ability of China to build some of the infrastructure itself that the U.S. is starting to, to ban through, you know, through the export rules in place. Yeah, indeed, it's a very hot topic. Um, and uh, we do see a lot of debates on this topic in the market. So on one hand, uh, it probably it's easy to imagine that the demand side, it will be very good for the domestic supplier. Because without this US ban on the China semi-industry, uh, some of the domestic suppliers, they, they definitely cannot enter into this market. Um, but now with all these bans, limitations, they have the opportunities to do China era for their clients. Um, and the clients will also give more tolerance on, on their product qualities. So it's a very good opportunity for them to improve themselves. But on the other hand, we also need to be aware there is a very real gap on the technology level between US and China. So what the US limits on the China semi-industry is not only the supply of chips, but also the supply of the semi-equipment. It probably also will slow down you know, uh, the development of the China semi-industries. I think net-net, it's probably a lose-lose situation for both countries um, because in the past, when we have this cooperation, it's always a combination of very big market in China and very good technology in the U.S. So that creates a positive spiral, you know, to help the technology speeding up its development. But unfortunately, it looks like the trend is going to be reversed uh, in the next decade. You know, I have one big question, though, regarding this whole supply chain and, and importantly climbing up the value chain and and that is does China actually have the talent? Evelyn, what do you think? There is one point four billion people, right? The sheer size of it, uh even if China has one tenth of the talent than the US, China has four times of population of the US, right? So there <laughs> yeah, there is a fertile ground to cultivate the talent. And uh that's a very interesting question. If you read a report from the Central Economic World Conference, the human capital side of things was emphasized, right? China is determined to educate for the next generation of tech leaders by providing, uh, from a policymaking perspective, the foundational system to promote this kind of uh, foundational education. Linda, do you have any thoughts on that? I think talking about talent, that's probably one of the biggest advantages that I can see in China, especially in those educated talent. Um, you know, we're talking about demographics, it's probably population is declining. But if we see the graduates, you know, every year we're still talking about 10 million new graduates uh, and that number is still rising. I think, yeah, educated talents is definitely, you know, one of the biggest pool that we have, uh, which can help a lot on the um, uh, moving up on the value chain. Well, Catherine, that was quite a range of topics, wasn't it? And I really like the deep dive into supply chains and particularly the way we've linked it to markets and this bounce back that we've had since the end of October in the Chinese markets. And, you know, I think what we picked up in talking to both Evelyn and Linda is we've hit the beta. We're probably moving into more of a sector allocation and a company specific stock picking environment, aren't we? 
Yeah, exactly. And, and when you speak to our fund managers and the analysts, really doing a deep dive on those opportunities, which aren't sort of related just to the reopening theme. So lots going on. And you know what, Marty, whenever we do these podcasts, or in fact, nearly every day of my life, I just think that the stars are pretty much aligned for China in theory, right? I mean, there are obviously some risks. And perhaps at one point in, in one of our shows, we can address these risks, like potentially, you know, whether China introduces luxury tax or property taxes. But in general, you know, that argument that China still looks very, very attractive um, remains in place. It does. It does. And Catherine, just think back to the party Congress when the markets took a dive and we came out and said, this is a big opportunity. We've seen some of that opportunity. I think I agree with you. It still continues, but, uh, but it'll be a very good topic that we continue to explore, won't it? Yeah, but Marty, I also remember at that time being in your office with a lot of trepidation about, we sure we're right? Are we sure yeah, we're right? Yeah, well, those bold calls are the tough ones, aren't they, Catherine? <laughs> True. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd really like to thank our guests, Evelyn Huang and Linda Zhou, and to our other contributors, James Trafford and Chris Wong. And of course, thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website, or fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue, Keith Chern, and Kim Juko. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.